Welcome to the DMF. I am your host, Justin Yance, and today my guest is Evan Crook, who is a distributor, a producer, a director, and a writer. Enjoy. This is part two. That it brings is. us to, you went to the University of Tampa. I Talk did. a little bit about that. Oh, yeah, I went there. Uh, well, first of all, let me let me speak briefly. Um, mm-hmm. Some people might relate to this or may not, um, may or may not be helpful. But so growing up, uh, I had uh, tremendously, I had horrible uh, learning disabilities. I had dyslexia. I had, um, uh, so when I was in high school, I was probably three to four grade levels behind. And I had a real hard time. And even before that, when I was, I guess, three to seven years old, I had a terrible speech impediment. No one could understand me, believe it or not, except for my dad. And out of frustration, I went to my dad and mom, apparently. And uh, and I do remember vaguely going to these uh, speech therapy classes on a weekly basis. And uh, they took me because I was really frustrated. And um, and now today, it's the most annoying gift I, I have, which is over speaking, uh, talking more than I should. <laughs> but so I had a I had speech impediments and then I had learning disabilities. And um, when given the time, my test scores were uh, above normal. Um, and and I, my grades were always uh, good, solid A's. And um, but in a standardized normal sort of setting, of uh, measuring stuff, I was I was fall I was behind, and so in high school I spent um, probably two or three summers just working relentlessly, trying to catch up. By the end of high school, I had gone from three or four grade levels behind to actually surpassing college level before I graduated high school, and had gone into like the second year into college based on on test scores. Um, so I had really passed, uh, caught up. I was also on the student council and then ended up uh, graduating at the top of my class in sort of high school. But with all that said, I was going to a, a school that was um, for learning disabled children. There was very little understanding when I was growing up about learning disabilities. There was more when I was coming up through the ranks than there was before me. But still, in general, there was very little about it. And they would, when back in the day, they would put a learning disabled child uh, in public school, they would put a learning disabled child in, say, the same room as a retarded child. Well, the difference is a retarded person's IQ was anywhere between 30 to 50. A learning disabled child's IQ would be anywhere from 100 to 125. Big difference. And so, and, and learning disabled was misdiagnosed as being lazy or missed being diagnosed as being lazy and stupid and neither were the, neither were correct. Um, and so, by the, so the principal, uh, or the vice president or vice principal rather of my high school told my dad that I would never get into a normal college, uh, basically that I was too stupid, not a nice thing to say. Um, it made me only work harder, and I ended up getting into multiple colleges, including uh, Syracuse University. I got into a few 
really well-known schools, but I ended up leaving Pennsylvania and going to Florida because it was warm. I was yeah. tired of the cold. Um, pr prior to Pennsylvania, we were in Syracuse growing, I was growing up in Syracuse and that was brutal, absolutely brutal as far as the weather is concerned. So I went to the university of Tampa and, uh, and had a great, had a great experience, um, but also had to work really hard. And so to give, to give you an idea of that process, I found out early on when I was in high school, I would, I would, um, I would not do well on certain things the way other students might do well on tests or whatever. So what I started doing is recording. No one told this to me. I just sort of felt what, what I needed. I started recording the lectures. I would sit in the front of the class. I would record the lecture um, or, and, and, and the, the teacher's uh, teachings. And, and then I would go home. I would listen to the recording. I would write it down. I would listen again. And then my grade started going up. And what, and so what I realized and what people around me realized is that one of my learning disabilities is that I needed to visually see it and I needed to hear it audio-wise. I needed video and see it. And it wasn't memorization. I actually was learning it. I had to learn mm. it. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't a guy that could memorize something and then go in and just ace the test that's not how my yeah. wires in my head were, were were configured so so over time in high school through to college I, I really learned how to adapt and compensate and know what tools were helping me and what tools weren't and what was working and what was not working and then getting results. And I think out of that, I started to really appreciate that process. And that's where I started to respect that process. So by the time I got to college, I had graduated um, University of Tampa, I think 3.9, almost a 4.0. I uh, was on the on honors list. I was on the dean's list. I was uh, in all kinds of programs. I had won the Fuji scholarship kind of uh, thing that they gave some money on a, on a documentary that I did that, that was well-respected. Um, I was ahead of my class in the communication department. I had gotten into graduate school at CalArts. Um, I had gone for a bit at NYU. Um, and, um, and so, but none of that would have been possible if I had not committed myself to the process and really stayed focused with it. And it was agonizingly painful, particularly in the first 23 years of my life, 24 years of my life, it was torture. I mean, it was really, really uncomfortable. Um, yeah. So the average person that would go into a class and spend two hours in a lecture, let's say at college, would go home and maybe do 30 minutes of homework, right? Okay, maybe it's 40, it's my, whatever. For me, it was two hours of a lecture, plus listen to the two hour lecture again. So that's four hours, then another hour to do the homework. So it was five hours, four to five hours extra when it's all, you know, sit and done of commitment just to be able to master that class. But the end result was I was getting A's where my peers were getting B's and C's. And yeah. the other end result was that I had really 
sunk myself so much into the data and the process that I had actually learned it. I hadn't memorized it. And so that's what I mean earlier by what I was referring to about a real commitment to the process. You know, if I had had it easier and my parents uh, were were wealthy growing up, and, and which they were, and they and I got lucky there, and then I got lucky with no learning disabilities. My mom wasn't sick, and she hadn't died, and had all these other things, and I had just been like everyone else. Uh, there's a good chance I would have grown up as a spoiled brat, like every other rich kid, and uh, and 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 would have just um, not had those things that sculpted my 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 wiring in my head of of how I approach things. So do way you, more yeah. Do you think you have to go through adversity to learn something like that? Could you learn say say you didn't have a learning disability, could you still get there? Or is that one of the keys to learning is adversity? I think I think nothing, I don't think anything really important in life or really, really good has ever been created in the history of time without some adversity. If you look at all history, it doesn't exist. The pyramids, uh, the constitution of the United States that came together, magnificent piece of writing, none, nothing, the creation of the car, the space shuttle, nothing, absolutely nothing that's ever been created has that has been worth it that has changed people's lives did not create some adversity that didn't come with problems. And anytime you do something new, someone's always there to challenge it. They're either there to challenge it because they doubt you and they want you to fail. They're there to challenge it because they are jealous and want to steal it from you, or they're there just challenging it. And they're because they're just nasty. And so, so many different reasons, but I don't know anything, nothing, nothing in all the history of all the world and the universe that was ever done by any human being that didn't come with enormous obstacles. Um, yeah. And anything that happened without obstacles wasn't worth even talking about. <laughs> How do we put that more into the culture that people need to understand that the adversity is the learning tool? Because well, I don't first, think that's yeah. known. Yeah, well, I agree with you. That's a good question. The first problem is let's take their phones away and let's stop having them get their history from Instagram. Um, and, and, or, or I'd say, you know, get your history from Instagram, but also back it up with something else so that you can compare and contrast. If you insist on Instagram and stuff, at least have another source so that it's not just one. See, that's the thing. I think let's, let's, yeah, let's talk, let's talk, let's talk about first getting our history from a good set of teachers let's talk about paying educators the the more money and let's talk about good classroom instructions and let's talk about good hands-on in the field real experiences at an earlier age as opposed to non-reality uh and things that have no no connection let's connect the dots in real time and let's find creative ways to keep younger people entertained um, and enjoying it and finding ways that they can enjoy the process. Everybody has pain they can tap into. Um, most people are lucky. They don't have, you know, learning disabilities is a real problem. It, it affects millions and millions of uh, human beings around the world. But in overall, it's a small problem. And so, and it's a hidden problem. It's not like it's a disability yeah. 
where you have a physical handicap that someone can obviously notice it. Anyone who comes in contact with me doesn't know the struggles that I that I've had with that um, and thinks automatically that life was a piece of cake. Um, and so uh, th there were many, many, many dark days um, that that really uh, I had to struggle to find, you know, get through things um, to this day, my weakest you know, situation still is my spelling is not great and my grammar and, and, uh, you know, but, but overall, um, I pretty much have compensated on, on, on all levels, uh, and have caught and excelled beyond. But I, I think that's the other thing is adults always think that the learning curve is always over. You know, yeah. once you reach a certain plateau that you no longer learn, that's absolutely that's not true. Around. And you're always capable of learning. Even if you're 90 years old, you can always learn something that you hadn't learned before. The so question is, are you willing to? Uh, yeah. And most people get more rigid and more stuck in their ways as they get older. And um, and they convince themselves that they don't need to do this and this and that. And they also have an entitlement issue. We're not entitled to anything. Um, and so, um, the process is really important. And what I love about creating and the creative process of telling stories is it really does involve a process. It really e evolves over time and it's very, very challenging. And while, you know, if you get, if you focus, like my writer and I, we're working on this story based on a novella and we spent months focused on just the lead killer just the the on, in this thriller and breaking down this killer's background and psychological and rituals and what this killer does and what they don't do and applying rules to the killer and applying rules to this character and so on all this before he even starts writing the script it's been very helpful and it's been a very very long process but um i i think you, you know, going through these kinds of things can help sometimes. But, you know, everyone's journey is different. That's the other thing. And then everybody in Hollywood, you know, I had somebody at um, a school, I think it was um, Woodbury or UCLA, somewhere I was teaching, I, I was doing sort of an adjunct teaching thing where I was brought in to teach some a class or two. And one student asked me, they said, well, this is years ago, she said, well, you know, how do I get to be like Spike Lee or Spielberg? And I said, well, what do you, I don't understand what that question is. What do you mean by that? She said, well, how do I get that notoriety? How do I get, you know, to the end of the rainbow, essentially, right? Where, where do I, how do I get um, those, those awards and that money and this? And I said, <laughs> you're asking the wrong question. You, yes. you first ask yourself, what do you enjoy doing? What makes you excited? What gives you um that umph that 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 you know the energy that that is worth living and um and she couldn't answer the the question and i said <laughs> you need to first figure that out first and the, the questions that you're asking are irrelevant they're they're completely yeah. irrelevant um so but it goes back to what we were just talking about you know the result oriented she's putting the result she's already looking at the result and it's like but you got to understand that the pro you got to love the process Right. In order to do that, 
Correct. And Spike Lee, Spielberg, all those people enjoy that process. Yeah. Or they wouldn't be doing it. Yeah. I think, you know, I've been working on a documentary on my dad and his life because he had a very different life than I had, but a remarkable life. And um, and he's done remarkable things for people. And I think one of the areas that never dawned on me until recently that, that I was alluding to earlier is where we connect is that process. Now, my dad became one of the top leaders in the scientific world. And most people in the scientific world, scientists, doctors, pharmacists, whatever, they generally come from a privileged lifestyle, meaning that their parents were fairly wealthy or middle class. In my dad's situation, he came from real poverty, literally off the streets, and became one of the youngest scientists uh, to run some of the biggest biotech pharmaceutical companies in the world. And he got a lot of degrees in a very short period of time because he's very smart. But I also think he encountered enormous obstacles uh, growing up, tremendous obstacles that most people would never encounter, including living literally off the streets uh, as a kid. I mean, eight, nine, 10, 12 years old and very impoverished and dealing with lots of bad things around him and i think he had to find ways to adjust compensate and live through a difficult set of processes that channeled him in different directions but in the end kept him alive and gave him a set of skills that allowed him to be where he is today and so i think where we respect each other a lot is that the challenges that I had were very different than the challenges that he had, but yet we both went through a journey that was very challenging, you know, very difficult. And so I had terrible learning disabilities. I had speech impediments and my mom was dying uh, and was sick most of my life. And I found her dead at the age of 14 when I came home from high school. So that wasn't a good day, but on my dad's side, he had a horrible upbringing. His mom was absolutely terrible. He came from absolute poverty. He lived in a house that was 400 square feet with his mom and, and his cousins and his brothers and no bathroom. And I mean, we're talking awful. And at one time, one point lived in a cardboard, I mean, a, a tar paper shack under a, under a bridge. I mean, literally under a bridge. So obstacle after obstacle and every person that he grew up with uh, when he was a kid, ended up either dead or in jail, for real. No question about it. And uh, one of his friends that he was heading to his house, his friend's father blew his brains out on the, on the uh, patio because his son had borrowed the car the night before and blew his brains out with a shotgun. Um, so he had really incredible world of poverty, followed by yeah. real world of crime, and real world of violence. I mean, extreme, but he was able to overcome that. He was able to overcome all that and became an intellectual, a scientist dedicated to saving people's lives. And of course became a great father. And, but that process that going through obstacle after obstacle, after obstacle, and each obstacle being almost worse than the one before sometimes, um, really uh 
uh, you know, made him uh, who he is today, which, you know, he's he's built of steel. And so um, uh, I think that's where we intersect. I, I think that's where, you know, we, we appreciate each other on that level quite a bit. I, th- I think also <clears throat> for you, you had that role model of somebody who went through that and you were able to able to relate. Um, I had. I didn't have dyslexia, but I had some fine motor processing and um, auditory processing issues. Okay. So you, um, my, so I understand learning this because I, yeah. you know, I, I'm one. I know what it's like to, you know, be in the classroom. Sure. And it's like everybody else is done. Sure, I'm not done yet. Yeah, you know? of course. And teachers exactly. looking at you like right. my mother so would, you know, fight these teachers to give me extra time. Sure. And I'd have sure. to deal with their prejudices against me, like I'm sure. cheating or something. So right. I know exactly what you, so I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, yeah. Okay, that about does it for part two of my interview with Evan Crook. I hope you enjoyed it. I want to thank him personally for coming on. As always, you can find me at Justin Yachts. Please like, share, and subscribe, and consider checking out the YouTube channel. And I will see you next time on the DMF.